This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long and the Future for Investors, Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views are guests of their own and not those of literature affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. We've been on, we were on tape last week. We haven't talked to the professor here on the show in two weeks. It'll be good, interesting to get his take on what is happening. Uh, but, Professor, let's start off with you. It's been uh, been a week or two here. What's uh, what's your th- your sense of what's happening? Well, go- gold is moving, isn't it? Um, looks like it'll break uh, its uh, all time high. You know, we've talked so much about the flood of money uh, uh, into the system, and we're not just talking about Fed credit. We're talking about that M one, which uh, with a pa- there was a pause last week in its growth. It uh, two weeks ago it surged again last week. Uh, I expect it to continue to increase. The dollar is sinking. Um, not an emergency, it's, but um, uh, this is also good for stocks, clearly. Uh, also, the uh, it's a sinking dollar. Um, uh, also, uh, the, uh, sort of revives the uh, international motive for uh, investing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean... There's so many things going on. I have, obviously, the um, uh, the 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 stimulus virus package, CARES 4.0, if you want, is uh, the Republicans have agreed. Uh, the Democrats are going to hold. The, uh, one of the big sticking points is $600 extra, which is really too much. The Democrats want to retain it. My feeling is is they're going to come to an agreement. It's going to be a phase off. There will be a deal. Um, there's going to be an extension of the um, uh, uh, payment protection for those uh, 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 businesses that are still over 50% effect, uh, affected, which is definitely necessary. So I think we're going to get a phase out of that 600 going down as a compromise. Uh, the plan will pass. It'll be a kind of a little cliff here. There'll maybe an emergency measure just to keep it going, but I don't. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, my God, if it ends and uh, it collapses. Virus news, you know, is if, if you look at the details, it's not as bad as the headlines. There is uh, some topping out in Arizona, in Texas, um, uh, and some of the other places. Um, Goldman Sachs reminded the fact that uh, although cases are rising, uh, the, uh, the the number of symptomatic cases is not really rising because there's getting a lot of positive tests of people that are asymptomatic. Uh, and we still know, although deaths have risen, 
a bit. They're nowhere near where they were back in April, way below, and this is even accounting for the time lag that we have between uh, the hospitalizations and the other. And, of course, we've talked about that for many, many weeks. Um, it is uh, because of techniques, it's become less deadly. Uh, we had a, you know, no bad news on the virus front. It's, everything is moving ahead full steam. Um, more and more people are really talking about the reality of, uh, of many doses of virus for vulnerable groups uh, by year in. And I think the stock market is, is taking that uh, uh, as a positive and holding in here. And as, as we're starting to get some earnings numbers here, any reaction so far from some of the companies that you're, you're watching? You see anything? Yeah, I mean, the bar was low. We, we know it was really a, a tough quarter. Um, no, no real, real surprise. I mean, S&P has, you know, earnings dropped 30% this year. That might be a little bit too much, uh, as we uh, as we know. I think what more people are looking at when they look at 2021 is, you know, obviously the question of the the the, the recovery, the the permanent shifts are going to favor a lot of industries that are in indexes that are heavy weighted now, and um, that sharp rise in productivity by uh, getting rid of a lot of people that had uh, that uh, that firms are finding they don't need to do and don't need to have. So we're going to see a jump in productivity here. I mean, obviously, we have the election. We've been talking about that. Democratic sweep means higher taxes, um, but there's going to be more government spending and more liquidity. So the market is sort of saying, yeah, there's some bad points of a dem sweep on the tax front. There's some good stuff with lots of more liquidity into the system. And those for, and I hear a lot about people saying, oh, there's too much debt, too much debt. Well, in an inflationary world, <laughs> debt is a good thing to have, especially once you've locked it in at zero interest rates. Uh, that's not going to be a, a big burden. Um, and again, uh, you know, I believe that we're going to have moderate inflation for a few years with all this money that has been created to uh, fight uh, COVID-19. I mean, it's interesting, as you started off with gold is starting to reflect that. You had a massive move this week in silver, sort of playing silver catch up too, on yeah on some of this, but rates are like 60 basis points yeah, below on the tenure. They don't, they don't believe it. I see that 58. <laughs> Whoa. Again, a massive hedging demand. People don't care about the yield. Uh, and, you know, as I said, there'll be inflation and they still, you know, they'll, they'll accept the depreciation as the cost to, to hedge out uh, equity risk. And it's a, we're going to, as we said, it's going to be very, very expensive. And, uh, and uh, you know we we, we uh, you know we see an increasing migration towards the uh, income producing stocks and away from the the no yield uh, bond market particularly treasury bond market as something that uh, will emerge in uh, 2021 very good i think uh, that's a great way to start the show thanks for some comments here thank you i'll talk to you next week Thank you. We're going to bring in our, our first guest, Jonathan Galoob, who's a, a the, the managing director, chief U.S. equity strategist at Credit Suisse. He's been one of the top-ranked strategists by institutional investor, also a graduate of the Wharton School. Great to have more Wharton grads on Behind the Markets here at Business Radio at the Wharton School. Thanks for coming, Jonathan. Hey, Jeremy. Um, so maybe, you know, tell us a little bit how you're looking at the world. What's your, your top-of-the-house view from Credit Suisse as, as you think about how the U.S. equity markets have been performing here? 
Yeah, and I think that Professor Siegel hit upon many of the, the, the key issues, but I'll start with um, the, the story on, on earnings, and I'll take it from a, a couple places. First of all, um, the, the, if you look at the economic data that's been coming in in the last month, it's been substantially better than what the forecasts have been. And we're seeing not only that on the economics, but now that we're in earnings season, we're seeing that in, in the earnings data. The average company is beating their estimate by about 13%. Now, those are just colossally big numbers. Now, we know that the bar was low with this being a really lousy growth rate earnings season, but the size of the beats is, is, uh, is really impressive. And it's really important that this is happening not – you know, in the tech sector alone, but, but quite broadly. And in financials, um, we're, we've seen really big beats by the bank. And that's important because what, what, what they're reflecting is, are people going to be able to make loans? What does loan demand potentially look like? Things of that nature. So the earnings season story is pretty good. Now, here's the, here's the unfortunate thing is that when um, a company is beating by a, big, by a big number, the market is not responding. The actual size of the market's response to these earnings announcements is substantially smaller than normal. So the market's basically saying is, yes, we know that the, that the second quarter was really a lousy earnings quarter. Yes, you beat by a lot, but, but the bar was low. Let's look forward and see where other things happen. And the market's kind of ignoring the earnings story perhaps uh, more than it should. There is um, an entirely different story on earnings, which I think is, is really important, and it relates to this, the, this market story around growth versus value or the FANG stocks versus everything else or the top five versus the next 495 stocks, however we want to put it. But there's this belief that, that, the, that the market's getting carried away in these concentrated small group of stocks that's dominating everything. And the reality is they're just beating everything else in terms of, of earnings. They, the market is, is, uh, is having a, a substantial collapse or a contraction in, in profits, obviously because of the crisis. And this narrow group of tech companies is, is not winning because of sentiment or flows and, and, and the like. It's winning because they're, they're putting the numbers up on the scoreboard better than uh, other companies. They have less debt on their books. They're less volatile. They, um, they have higher margins, which means if there's an economic shock, they're able to withstand it better. Their sales growth is higher. Their margin structure. So they're, they're like legitimately better businesses. And this earnings season um, is, is really confirming all of those, um, you know, all of those key stories. It, it is interesting, yeah, that the, uh, the the domination of the top is uh, you know it's a theme you see a lot, and and how much of it can continue. It, do you do you have and when you think about those earnings trends being supportive? It, I mean, is there things on the value side that you think start to look more attractive? Is part of it just the virus, um, and then that's accelerating some of their earnings trends versus some of these more reopening type uh, value names, or, or how do you think what the 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 pivot might work if, if value ever starts to to perform again? Well, when we talk about growth and value, I think that we really mischaracterize it. Value stocks, you know, classically are low PE stocks that don't grow fast. They're, they're, but they're cyclical. They tend to be in the industrial sectors and, and the like. What they really are are businesses with fixed overhead. Value is basically old economy and growth is new economy. And now what's, 
what what I think sometimes people miss is that when the U.S. economy and the global economy reaccelerate, businesses with a lot of fixed overhead tend to do really, really well because they're able to increase their sales, but their but their cost structure is fixed, so they they get more sales without a lot of variable expense. One of the nice things about buying software companies and tech companies is that they don't have that fixed overhead, so if things weaken up, they hold up pretty well. So the, the upside for value is really is, is, is success in beating the virus. If we get a, you know, a, a vaccine sooner than we believe, or if the, as, as Dr. Siegel was talking about, if the, um, yes, people are getting sick, but we're finding that, that the severity of, the, of their illnesses or the deaths is not um, so burdensome, and, and, and that allows us to successfully open up the economy better than we would all expect, those are the conditions that drive value over growth. It's not going to be that growth ran too far or got too far ahead or that they were too expensive or too cheap. That's not going to be it. Value wins if we have a successful reopening process, growth wins if the reopening process gets dragged on longer. And, and you know, when some people have tried to, to put context of this year's concentration versus past, I know you've done some work on just how valuations have compared to sort of the last tech bubble. Any any comments on just the the multiples you're seeing, and, and so there's earnings trends versus the previous peak of tech. Yeah, I mean, if 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 you're using the you know the very late 90s and you know into let's say march of 2000 as a context um to the the these five or 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 dozen names that are doing like super well they're they're expensive compared to the market but the premium that you're paying is not even in the ballpark of where you were at the peak of the internet bubble and so if somebody said well how far can this go the answer is really far um, even if we don't have a change in conditions, um, we're not looking, especially, in, and I don't love the idea of a peg ratio, like the PE you pay for unit of growth. There's better ways of looking at stocks, but if you look at the idea of what are you paying for the growth that you're getting, these tech names are incredibly cheap because they're delivering such strong earnings compared to everything else, and that dynamic is totally different than where we were, you know, 20 years ago during the internet period. Very interesting. Um, we're, we're talking with Jonathan, Jonathan Gloob, who's a chief strategist at Credit Suisse, about his work on what's happening in the markets, how he looks at it as a, as a whole. And Jonathan, I think when when we were we were starting to talk about uh, with Professor Stewart, just you've had these big inflation trades like gold and silver move, uh, equities are doing well, but the bond market has not. And, and you know, so the rates in terms they're not reflecting sort of this sort of uh, resumption inflation or any sort of economic growth. They're sort of capping these rates at, at 60 base points on the 10-year. How do you think about that from an asset allocation perspective? How do you think about that feeding into valuations? I know you've also done some work on rates tied to, to the different valuation markets. I was dying to jump in when Professor <laughs> Siegel was talking about this um, I, cause I, because I agree with some, uh, so much of what he said, and, I, and there are other parts that I don't know if I do. Listen, there, there's, it's really simple that gold is telling you that we have an inflation problem, or at the very least that a large group of investors think we have an inflation problem, and the bond, envi- the bond market is telling you that that's absurd, and we absolutely do not have an inflation problem. 
here's the truth. One of those markets is wrong, and one of them is right, and I'm betting with the bond market over gold. Gold is a more speculative asset. If you invest in gold, you don't get a dividend, you don't get an interest payment. Um, it's not used for transactions the same way that, that bonds are really part of the economic system. And so um, if you look at the tips market, which, which breaks down the amount of the um, interest rate that you think that, you're, that, that should come from inflation rather than the spread, it's telling you that we're not going to have an inflation problem, not only this year and next, but for the next 10 years. And, um, you know, we never know. But um, the burden that, well, listen, when we were go before we even got into the crisis, we had rates that everyone thought were absurdly low and couldn't go any lower. And now the expectation is that we're going to have sub 1% interest rates for as far as the eye can see. Um, I'm, I'm on the betting side that, that, um, that we don't have an inflation problem. Now, from a stock market perspective, not talking about gold or silver, from a stock market perspective, this is a big theme in the growth value trade. If, value, if, if you have inflation, you want to be an investor in values, indices, value stocks, what have you. If you believe that the inflation is weaker, then you want to buy growth. And so I'm naturally pushed towards growth investments because I believe that we're going to have more muted inflation going forward. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, I you know I've been working with Professor Siegel now for like 19 years, and uh, you know I've never known him to talk about positively about gold. And this was the first year he does. You know, he's on the other side of the inflation trade. He thinks it, he does think we're going to get. Now, now he doesn't say a problem, but he does think inflation is going to run hotter um, going forward. And it's it's fascinating on on the bond side, not uh, not reflecting any of that. So you're you know right now the the bond market's agreeing with you. To explain to listeners why in if in, inflation's going up, and and I assume it's tied to this fixed cost issue you were talking about before, but why value is the place to be on higher inflation? It, Jeremy, and you're, you're, smack, you're smack on with this. Think about a, fix, a high fixed cost company, which is really what value stocks are, and you bought this, this factory. Whether you sell one unit or a thousand units, you own that factory. If you have inflation, you're going to be able to sell your product for more and more money but the cost of that factory has been fixed because you made that investment already. And therefore, if you have inflation, your revenues go up, but your fixed costs don't. And that is a big win. Inflation drives better margins in value companies. Now, on growth, you have the, the opposite, which is you're going to get inflation on your revenues, but you're also going to get a pickup in your expenses. Think about a software company that's paying for programmers. If, the, if inflation goes up, yes, you sell your software for more, but your programmer may ask for a raise, and they move up together. So um, if, you, if you think that the inflation environment is more muted, um, it, it's not as favorable for value, um, and that's how, how I think things play out. You've done some some PE work, you know, looking at credit spreads uh, and and how that ties into like an earnings yield versus bond yield model. You know, we often talk about the earnings yield on the S and P. You know, it's called a twenty PE now; it's a little bit higher than twenty PE, but you get a five percent earnings yield uh, and and compared to a tips yield in a way where you get sort of this real equity premium. How do you think about the credit spreads playing into that and and how that factors into what value should be? What it says for the equity bond spread going forward. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and let me maybe broaden this out. When interest rates move, 
And let's just assume for a second that when we say interest rates, we're talking about all interest rates as if they're all you know, made the same, which is not true. Um, when interest rates go up, it has both a positive and a negative impact on stocks. When interest rates go up, that means the cost of capital is rising. Your discount rate is rising. It is, I think this is the, the first lesson when I was back at, at, at Wharton a long, long time ago that you learned that, that, that we all as investors spend way too little time thinking about the discount rate and way too much time thinking about the top line of revenues. Um, so rising, rising rates, everybody's concerned that that's going to squash stocks. But, but, the, but there's a positive is that rates rise for a reason, and they typically rise because the economy is getting better and the demand for capital is going up, and that's a very positive thing. Now, if you break down interest rates into two parts, one is, let's say, where is the U.S. government uh, treasury uh, yield? let's say on a 10-year bond, and the other is the credit spread that a corporate investor needs to borrow at, it, well, let's say a corporate bond. If the, um, if the credit spread is going up, that means a corporate borrower needs to pay more. The only the, the big, big reason that, that the credit spread goes up is because people are afraid that, that uh, you're going to default on the bond. So rising interest rates because of credit spreads are a sign of, of poor health. On the other hand, rising interest rates because of the 10-year bond going up, demand for treasuries, that's a sign of economic health. So, it, you really, so when people talk about the direction of interest rates, you really have to break it down. Rising rates because the 10-year is going up is good. Rising rates because of credit spreads going up is bad. Now, what's going on right now is that credit spreads are falling, and that's basically saying the economy is healthier than you think. People are not concerned that businesses in this environment are going to default on their loans. As bad as it is, if no one defaults on their loans, then that, that's a healthier economy. Um, on the other hand, and, and Professor Siegel mentioned this as well, the, we're looking at a, a 58 basis point yield on a 10-year bond. That's a sign of economic weakness. And so similar to gold versus bonds, where they're telling you two stories and only one of them will ultimately be right, the, the bond market's even fighting with itself. The credit market, corporate bonds, high-yield bonds, are telling you that things are, are, are okay. And the treasury market is saying is, no, they're not. There's no demand for capital. Things are not as healthy. One of them will prove to be, uh, to be right, and we'll see which it is. You got the Fed in there playing a hand on all that, compressing the spreads, keeping rates in a way, you know, low. Um, so it's 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 and like how much is real and how much is just the Fed sort of babysitting uh, the bond market there. You know, it's it's a great question. First of all, the Fed has their thumb on the scale, which which you know, if you think about what is so important as an investor, is you need price discovery. You need to be able to have the market tell you what something is worth. And when the Fed has their thumb on the scale, it becomes really difficult. The one thing that we know is no bond investor wants to buy a high-yield bond or an emerging market bond or, or, or even investment-grade bond if they think that there's a chance that they're not going to get paid back. So the Fed can go and buy corporate debt if they wish, but if investors are concerned about defaults, they're going to say to the Fed, you buy all that paper you know, that you want, I'm staying away. And, the, and that's not what's happening. It's not only the Fed who's buying these corporate bonds, but it's, it's the institutional investors who are convinced that we're not going to see 
a spike in bankruptcies that would be problematic. And so there's actually pretty good news. Um, I, I basically, is the, the credit markets are providing what I think is a pretty positive signal for stock investors. And so when you put all this work you've done, you know, together into a, I don't know if you, if you particularly look at, uh, you know, asset allocation like this, but when you think about like the standard, you know, one of the, the big questions you keep coming up, uh, and, and we've been, we talked about it is that the standard allocation has been like a 60, 40 equity bond mix and, and given rates and given what's happening in equities is, do you have a tilt on that? Would you be suggesting certain things given how far equities have come, given how rates, how low rates are? How do you pe- suggest people navigate these, these abnormal times? Um, so we, I don't maintain a, a stock bond model, but you know, if we, if I assume that for a moment I did, I think the problem is is that the in order for yields to get back to something that's that's reasonably competitive, interest rates have to go up, and that beats up on on bond investors. Um, so I, I think that that you're almost and and I hate to talk about. You know, you know, the idea that there's no other place to go but stocks. But um, I, the stocks may be expensive. Stocks may be have, – have run, you know, really tremendously. But I, I think that they're still going to give you a better return from here. I, here's what I think we're going to see um, going forward, that the economy is going to be uh, – I, I don't know if we would say permanently, but I think the economy for the next decade – is going to be weaker. Potential GDP going into the crisis was less than 2% a year in the U.S. That number is going to be even lower. So maybe it'll be one5 to 2% is the potential. And that's a, a, a not a great environment for corporate profits. So I think corporate profits are going to be much weaker than normal, not coming out, not immediately because we're getting a bounce off of this recession. But once we get back into something that looks a more normal, it's going to be slower. However, with interest rates really low and with the government committed to backstopping so much of the system, I think that stocks are going to trade at P.E. multiples that are going to be in the mid-20s for, uh, for a long time. So it's going to be a very bizarre environment for investors, weaker earnings growth, higher stock multiples, and I think that's the story. It's not a bad environment, it's not a bad environment for stocks. But it'll be one that'll be very confusing for a lot of uh, stock investors. Yeah, it sounds like that. We're gonna have to keep tabs of what you you guys are putting out there. When you think about within the equity market, are there? Uh, I saw you upgraded the consumer discretionary sector. Any sectors tilts that you you know, given what's going on in those earnings trends, anything that you're you're sort of talking about where to focus going forward? Right. So I think I think that there's two stories um, here. One, which is very specifically about the consumer, and, then, and I'll come back to that in a second. Um, but if you break down the market and you look at their profits, you have about 70% of the S&P 500 looks like surprisingly healthy, given how unhealthy the general economic backdrop is. Um, these are um, tech-related companies that represent almost 40% of the market, and non-cyclical stocks Again, which, which Professor Siegel was talking about, um, those which you know, generate lots of cash flow and very stable, um, that's about 30% of the market. And they're expected to see during the worst quarter of this crisis, which is the second quarter reporting that's reporting now, their profits will only be off by about 10% relative to where they were a year ago. And that's like an unbelievably positive story given how disrupted things have been. Now, the problem is the remaining 30% 
um, cyclical companies, industrials, energy, materials, um, traditional, in many areas in consumer discretionary, though not all, um, are having a much harder time, and that collective group is expected to be down about 100% year over year. So the market really is bifurcated. Now, when you look at stocks in the U.S. versus rest of the world, the rest of the world has most of their benchmarks, their index, indexes, are in the stuff that's troubled in industrials and energy and materials and banks and less in non-cyclicals and technology. So the U.S. is really positioned for success, not because the U.S. is a, is a better economy, which maybe we are, but because we just simply have the right stocks um, in terms of, of the, the mix of sectors. So that's one thing. With respect to consumer discretionary stocks, as we were talking about before, as you were kind of alluding to, the actions of the government to put, you know, to to have, you know, incredibly generous unemployment benefits. And, and then in addition to that, the PPP program, which is keeping small businesses going. And, and then if you marry that with the fact that people who are getting many of these benefits um, are not able to go out the way that they have in the past, and so they've saved a lot of money over the last three or four months because they're forced to stay at home with nothing to spend on, once the economy opens up, there's the real potential for a surge in discretionary consumer spending. Now, it's not going to happen everywhere. We're not going to necessarily go on a plane and take a European vacation, but it will show up in what I would call durable purchases. So if you, um, if you want to go and, and get a, an above-ground pool in your backyard and you go onto Amazon to do that, you may not be able to do that. It may be sold out because people are investing in their home. People are, are going and building that, that garden or redoing their kitchen, um, buying a new bicycle or tennis racket. Those kind of purchases are really surging. There are other things that we're not spending money on. We're not doing the same with buying clothing because we may be working from home, so we're sitting in sweats instead of going and buying a new suit. And so um, I think that the consumer space is particularly interesting um, in a way that it's, it, it's not the same as the industrial area because the, this excess capital is really ending up in the hands of the consumers in a way that helps that group, but not other cyclicals. Very good. This has been, been a really interesting conversation, Jonathan. Anything, other places you want people to stay in touch with your work, how to follow all the, the great stuff that you guys are producing at, at Credit Suisse? Um, you can always email me at jonathan.golub, that's G-O-L-U-B, at credit-suisse.com. Um, and, you know, we, we, we're publishing, gosh, um, probably three, four, five notes a week taking specific parts of the market and breaking it uh, and breaking it down and, and yeah from some conversations i had we had with you it uh, sounds like you got even more interesting stuff on factors that you're working on so it'd be be great to, to stay in touch with what you're doing thanks jonathan so much for coming on the program my pleasure thanks for listening to the behind the markets podcast if you want to learn more about wisdom tree visit wisdomtree.com you can also follow me on twitter at jeremy d schwartz I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, 
please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.